you know, when we see them in the open plains, they they know more than it's like looking at cattle. You know, you you think they're not very cantankerous or anything, but buffalo in 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 the thick brush is something that you need really need to pay a lot of respect to. And uh, you know, when they get old, they often uh, become deaf and they have bad eyesight, hmm. and they also sort of rely on their <clears throat> keeping still as they go and camouflage. You know, so you often almost walk onto them before uh they'll react and you know they often an old bull will often react by charging at you and we we uh we nickname them ninjas because that's literally what they are they ex- they explode out of nowhere and uh and definitely know how to sort you out if they want to these are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Well, Mike, I've been following you for for years, and uh, you're an absolute legend um, in my mind, if if not uh, in everybody's. And I, I'm excited to do this show Um you had a had a little run in this fall that I definitely want to talk about, but tell me a little bit about yourself and and what you do and where you live. Yeah, no, thanks uh, so much for those compliments. I'm originally from South Africa, and uh, I finished school and went straight up to Tanzania and did an apprenticeship there, which back in those days took about three years. Yeah, um, and I apprenticed at a kind of a legend, Danny McCullum. Okay, and uh, that that sort of uh, got me going, and. Uh, I worked for him for about 17 years in Tanzania. And in the interim, I was hunting in Chad and Central African Republic in Cameroon as well. Wow. And then about about 12 years ago, I started my own deal um, with a partnership with uh, Bushman Safari Trackers in Tanzania. We kind of got the premier concessions there. Is it in the Salu or is it um, in Masailand? So um, we've, we've kind of had a, a good portfolio of concessions all over Tanzania, one in the north on the, um, the west side of the Serengeti called Maswa. Okay. And then Maasai land as well. And then in the southwest of Tanzania called Rungwa and Kazigo. So, yeah, yeah, we've kind of had some great uh, different hunting there, different portfolios of hunts. And Rungwa is, uh, is known for monster leopards, right? No, more monster lions, actually. The monster leopards lions, are awesome. okay. Average size. Mass where, where I predominantly hunt is the place where you get those really, really big leopards. Okay, cool. Yeah. What uh, what got you interested in hunting to start with? You know, growing up, uh, my uncles had mines with a lot of land, so we hunted there, and my, my father had a, a ranch in South Africa. 
So uh, spent a lot of time in the bush and uh, became very passionate about it at an early age. And so that's, that's what was the foundation. Gotcha. Well, that, that transition between like being a young man who, who loves to hunt, who loves to be out there, loves the animals and, and the guns and every other part of it to becoming a guide or a PH. Um, that's a, that's an interesting one for a lot of people because young, young hunters think that that guiding is just like more hunting and uh, it's pretty different, isn't it? Oh yeah. I know it's, there's a lot of different dimensions that, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, a small part of it's the hunting, a you know, big part of it's the marketing and, you know, traveling the world, trying to get the, the clientele going. And then, uh, you know, obviously uh, conserving these areas that we love so much, you know, that's a huge part of it and managing those areas and, you know, putting in the infrastructure that's required and, uh, you know, doing all the anti-poaching work, which yeah. is sort of the basis of why we do this, you know. Tell me what anti-poaching looks like um, in the most honest way that you can. Yeah, so like in Tanzania, our areas are normally situated between national parks and community land. We form that buffer zone. And so when we do our jobs correctly, we actually keep the poachers out of the national park. And uh, that's kind of the science behind it. And uh, yeah, so we obviously get more um, we, we got get more interaction with poachers because we're on the front line, and uh, yeah, and that's all financed by the the legal sports um, conservation model. Gotcha. And that's what finance all this anti poaching. Yeah, so we in Tanzania we do it very heavily, and it had great success at it. If uh, if you talk to your run of the mill American and ask them about you know, who's, who's to blame when we're talking about poaching problems, they'll immediately go to blaming the guy who's setting the snare or shooting the rifle. My limited experience in Tanzania showed me that those people were dirt poor. And I, I had a hard time actually blaming those individuals who are going out and, and doing the killing of these animals. It seemed to me that it was more so a problem of whoever was, was buying the products from them and then distributing them or shipping them overseas. Uh, am I right in that assessment or am I off base? No, that's right. You know, there's this, in the time I've been in Tanzania, the population has doubled. Wow. And so, uh, you know, they, there's a lot of hungry mouths to feed for lack of a better word. And so a lot of these people are desperate and, you know, the, the, they have easy access to wild places where they can easily derive an income very quickly illegally as a poacher so it's a it's a very common sort of um, career path for a lot of these local local guys and uh, the problem is you know i found this out a long time ago when i started i was very liberal you know i felt very bad for them and what have you but you quickly realize that you've got to choose between the people or the wildlife decide which which you want to protect and if it's the wildlife you actually have to have a, you have to draw uh, a line in the in the sand and you have to stick by it and sure. uh, these areas were set up as, you know, not to have people in them. That's what keeping this habitat wild and keep is what uh, um, enables wildlife to to flourish. And yeah. so you, we have to be very strict about uh, conserving that habitat, not letting anyone in. Because if we are liberal about it, the next thing it turns into uh, farmland and, uh, and then the wildlife is gone. So uh, we have very strict uh, perimeters, boundaries, and we have to enforce them. Otherwise, that wild land's all going to be gone. And Tanzania is located in in East Africa, along the Indian Ocean. 
Talk to me a little bit about some of the challenges that uh, Salu is facing right now. I understand that there's uh, some dam work being proposed or being worked on. Well, it's it's actually it's um, they went in and and have made this huge dam for nuclear power, and so a lot of the old hunting concessions have been turned into national parks, but uh, a lot of the wildland has been lost to to this now huge lake. That's such a tragedy to me. No, it is, yeah, and you know, there's more people in there than ever before, so that definitely puts not only the lost vital habitat, but there's a, a lot more pressure coming in from people, and so uh, that can be a recipe for disaster. This uh, this area that I'm talking about that is called the Salou Game Reserve. It's named after Frederick Salou. It had, when I was there, the greatest diversity of megafauna in the world, in the whole world. And there are no permanent structures, there are no inhabitants, there are no livestock. It was, you know, you and the wildlife and the tsetse flies, and 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 that was it. it. It felt like what I imagined Africa to be, like old school Africa. So to think of that getting getting flooded, um, it, it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, you know, it's always sad when we lose any wildland, and that's the that's the sort of the trend. You know, it just every year pieces of a cher- uh, perish. You know, yeah, and that's why I think we have to be so firm on our and on on these protected areas um, that we that we manage them properly and don't uh, just let them be overrun with with uh, livestock and people, um, because you know once that happens, it's irreversible. There's lots of people that care about African wildlife um, in in the U.S. and around the world that don't understand it and they don't understand the issues that face it. So if if you were to give advice to someone that said, "Hey, I I genuinely care about you know pick your animal, whether it's you know leopard, lion, elephant, you know any of the charismatic animals, or or maybe something like a pangolin um, that that people know less about that are you know definitely definitely threatened by illegal activities." What's the best way for people to turn how they feel into positive action that will actually prevent the loss of that wildlife? Yeah, that's. A, I mean, it's a great question. And uh, you see so much of people with the right intentions putting money in the wrong places, you know, yeah. and not knowing any better for it. So uh, um, I, I always really encourage people to, uh, to uh, become knowledgeable about the organizations they fund and what they do with that money. Um, you know, my favorite um, foundation right now in Africa is, is Africa Parks. Okay. And they, uh, they're incredible. I mean, they, they go into undeveloped countries of Africa where the government really can't manage their national parks and can't manage their wildlife. And they sort of uh, do a partnership with the government where they come in and, and uh, train the locals and, and they've put in a lot of money and a lot of power and uh, basically turn these um, disaster national parks and stuff. They, they manage them and 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 protect them, and yeah. they've they've uh, had an immense impact across Africa and some of the most destitute countries and are doing amazing things. So yeah, that's that. I mean, that's that's a really that's a not not a hunting group by any means. They um I think they they're positive. They believe in the conservation hunting model, but they do really really great stuff, and uh, they understand how it works. But yeah, no, there's a lot of uh, organizations, and uh, the, you know the money gets funneled into the wrong places and really has uh, irreversible impacts on Africa. And so, yeah, it's do your, do your research, you know. I think one of the best ways that people could make a real difference is by coming and booking a freaking hunt with you. Like, yeah. you know, 
because a lot of that money is going to go into the right places. If not like, you know, and, and I'm a little bit suspect of, you know, some of the anti-poaching funds and how those get up to the government and come back down or don't. But I know for a fact that having good pHs and outfitters on the ground has a very real impact on reducing a poacher's ability to operate. And I know that the staff that you are managing, you know, those are people who who might potentially be out there poaching if they didn't have that job with you. You know, they've got the skill to do so. So I think one of the probably best ways that people could spend money is by spending it on a hunt with a reputable pH. Right. Very much so. You know, hunting, for lack of a better term, is, is a land use, just like yeah. farming is a land use. Hunting is a dedicated land use and it and it it, it zones off huge tracts of wildland um that would otherwise be used for agricultural or worse things like mining or coal mining, you know, where they cut all the trees down. So the, rather than just thinking of it as hunting, you've got to think of it as land use. And land use when you hunt is ultimately protecting the habitat. That's the first thing. Because if you don't have the habitat, you don't have the wildlife. You know, if you for cut sure. all the trees down, you're not going to have any elephants because that you know, that's vital um, food and nourishment for them. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what our hunting does. Uh, the very most basic level is it, it creates this land use. But uh, beyond that, um, you look at any of the countries that support hunting and how the wildlife has flourished. If we look at history, it would be very silly to consider ever closing hunting. You know, look at Kenya that lost, you know, up to 75% of its wildlife once they closed hunting. And, uh, you know, they lost so much land as a result of all that community land and stuff was lost forever. And uh, the countries that have hung on to it, like Tanzania, have these huge wild tracts of land all over the place that is dedicated to hunting. And it's really uh, conserved uh, wildlife in an incredible way. And so, you know, we've got to look at history and realize how important it is. And I get where people are coming from, even though I don't agree with their sentiment, but the same thing happened here in um, in the U.S. in California. Excellent example in California. People, you know, didn't feel good about hunting mountain lions anymore. They're like, we we don't want to see that. We don't want any of the mountain lions to die. I disagree with that, but I understand where they're coming from. Okay, so they ban mountain lion hunting, legal mountain lion hunting. The result of that is more mountain lions were killed in the following years by state employees. Who are having to go out and kill these lions that were causing problems than were killed in the previous years when legal hunting was allowed. So in their efforts to, to prevent mountain lions from dying, they caused more mountain lions to die. It's like, this That's is, right. I see that all the time. Yeah. You're, you're loving it to death. Look at elephants. Yeah. In one province in, in Kenya this year, there were 270 elephants shot by the government and by the locals um protecting crops sure that's in a country that doesn't support hunting that costs them money and that's a huge amount of elephants to lose especially when there's no management on it you know they could have been young ones they could have been potential tuskers you know that anything was was killed and it cost the government huge amounts of money i don't blame them a bit for protecting their crops and and protecting themselves and i think that there's lots of elephants out there that are causing damage that need to get killed but why not do that with legal professional hunting that then exactly. puts money back into the community instead of taking it from it exactly you know when you look at tanzania they do elephant legal elephant hunting and the most elephants 
they kill is about 10 a year. So in, in, in one province in Kenya where there's not hunting, they kill 270. And in Tanzania, sports legal sports hunters have only killed 10 in a year. Yeah. It's just so actually it just shows you that more elephants are killed in countries that don't support hunting than you know where they actually hunted legally and are producing huge amounts of income for wildlife and also at the same time protecting this this vital habitat. Sure, those ten elephants um, getting legally hunted in Tanzania puts over a million dollars into the economy of Tanzania, whereas those two hundred and seventy are you know that's that's multiple million dollars that are being taken away from Kenya that really can't afford that. And it's just, it's bonkers to me, but um, I don't want to get too spun out on elephants because, you know, I'll just, I got to manage my blood pressure here a little bit. So we'll, we'll move on from that. Talk to me about, uh, about what you just got done doing because you just went out and hunted um, a couple animals that are, I think some of the best meat, some of the best game meat I've ever had being warthog and Impala. Yeah, I just walked in the door. I was actually late for this Zoom call. Um, came in um, and I, I was actually hunting with a six-year-old, um, shooting warthogs and impala for Christmas rations for the staff on the farm. That's so, awesome. Um, that's what I was doing today it was really great. And I'm all about promoting youngsters to hunt because they're the future of, of conservation and wildlife. So I'm all about uh, that. I really get a huge kick out of it. I think warthogs are the coolest. I think they're just such an amazing and interesting animal. They're funny to watch. Tell me a little bit about warthogs. You know, most people just think of like the Lion King or, or something ridiculous like that, but they're interesting. No, they're, they're really cool animals. Um, they're abundant, first of all. You know, they in most ecosystems in Africa, you find them in, in great abundance, which is cool. But, you know, when it comes to, the, to, the, to eating them, they're one of the most delicious meats. Oh, yeah. I've got a recipe I do with barbecue ribs. That is just uh, insane, you know. <laughs> oh, no. But uh, more than that, you know, they're a key uh, food source for a lot of the predators like like lions and, and leopards and what have you. And uh, they need animals. I mean, they're highly intelligent. They're very vocal. They make a lot of funny sounds. And, uh, you know, they, they're cool. I mean, they're very interesting to me. Yeah, they're super interesting. And they they go to ground sometimes. Like, they'll get in holes. Yes, exactly. That's right. You <laughs> often see them with porcupine quills in their faces, and it's because they go into all that already as a porcupine, and they have a quarrel down there, and the, the uh, warthog inevitably loses. But that's quite a, kind of a common thing. And but, an uh, Af- African porcupine quill is no joke. That's not like uh you know, it's not like a needle. Yeah, that's right. When I uh, when I got hit by this buffalo in October, I've been doing physio, and my physiotherapist told me that the my wound is not as bad as the lady. Before me, he was hit by a warthog. Yeah, and, uh, I she bet. Was walking in, in the felt and uh, completely unprovoked, this warthog came out of a hole and put its tusk all the way up, up her leg, into her thigh and into her intestine. Wow! And it caused incredible damage. It's not that tough, big tusk; it's the, the short, sharp one underneath. Sure, but did an incredible amount of damage. So yeah, they they animals that definitely need a lot of respect. You don't want to mess with a warthog. Oh, for sure not. Um, and every time they open and close their mouth. that tusk and that incisor rub against each other and they sharpen every single time they open and close their mouth. It's constantly sharpening. What a remarkable thing. You know, we see that, we see that in this piece of wildlife that's existed for a long time. And, uh, and then I look at my knife and I'm like, why don't you sharpen yourself? You know, (laughs) (laughs) there we go. (laughs) And Impala is just like this super delicate, 
you know, it's fine. It's not gamey at all. It's just a very, very good light meat. Yes, and very abundant. I mean, they lots of impala that's been to Africa knows it's one of the most common animals you see. Yeah, and they are they are fast, man. A lot of times impala are are getting out of dodge. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So I was in Africa, I was in Tanzania in the fall of, of 2014. I kind of wish that, that I hadn't left. I loved it there so much. Um, and I was having real thoughts and conversations about ways to, to stay, to go to Dar es Salaam, to start that process of becoming a PH. And I chickened out and I came home and I haven't, I haven't been back, but man, I think that, that Cape Buffalo hunting is one of the finest hunts in the world. And mm. before we get into your story of, of this fall, talk to me a little bit about the animal itself and, and the way that hunters and, uh, and then African community interact with Buffalo. Yeah. So again, it's a pretty common animal, um, in Southern and East Africa. And, uh, you know, when you see them in the open plains, they, they know more than it's like looking at cattle, you know, you, you think they're not very cantankerous or anything, but buffalo in, in, in the thick brush is something that you need, really need to pay a lot of respect to. And, uh, you know, when they get old, they often uh, become deaf and they have bad eyesight hmm. and they also sort of rely on their <clears throat> keeping still as they go in camouflage, you know, so you often almost walk onto them before uh, they'll react and you know they often an old bull will often react by charging at you and we we uh, we nickname them ninjas because that's literally what they are they ex they explode out of nowhere and uh and definitely know how to sort you out if they want to and animals ability to hide in that country is pretty incredible you know i i've hunted my whole life and i'm i'm used to i'm used to looking for animals that are a long ways away miles away what I found interesting about hunting in, in the area of the slough that I was in is that you could have 150 buffalo that were visible. And if they were all still, they were very, very difficult to see. And, uh, you know, sometimes they might only be 150 yards away, 200 yards away. And then all of a sudden you see a, a tail switch or something like that. And you're like, oh, there's a buffalo. Yeah. And then as you start to look, it's like, no, there, there's a hundred head. Like th this is everything that I can see. Everything that's dark is a buffalo. It's incredible. Yeah, no, amazing. We always listen for those tick birds. Yeah, they always perch themselves on buffalo and eat the ticks. And uh, that's normally the first thing you hear when you're approaching buffalo. You'll hear those tick birds buzzing and jumping up, and that's kind of gives you an indication of where the buffalo are at. But uh, um, it's, with good reason, you should listen for them because that's normally um, good insight to where. Where are you going to walk into that buffalo? That's smart. Well, tell me what happened. I want to hear this story. Yeah, so it's it's actually been a really dry year in East Africa. In, Tan in Tanzania, especially, I mean, it's, it's the, they say it's uh, one of the driest years in about 40 years. And so when, when, when it's dry, everything is competing more for food and for water. And it definitely creates um, a, a more sort of... Um, cantankerous demeanor for these animals because they're competing so much and so yeah i started in july on my first uh hunt in tanzania and on that safari i actually got charged twice unprovoked wow it was a good indication of how the year was going to go i managed to stop those bulls um that were inbound at very close range and what what rifle are you carrying sir so that i was carrying a labo corelli 458 double okay and uh 
so anyway, yeah, I had a busy season. You know, we in Tanzania, we're blessed with a lot of buffalo. And on every license, we can shoot three or four buffalo. Yep. So, uh, you know, we shoot a lot of buffalo in a season. And, and uh, you know, in typical season, I, season, I might shoot about 50 of them, yep. 50 or more. So, uh, you know, of course, inevitably people wound them, clients wound them. And, you know, we have to deal with the consequences of that and try to put them out of, out of pain as quickly as possible. So we deal with a lot of sort of dangerous situations as a pH. And uh, it was no different in October. I, I started a 21-day safari. And on the first day of the of the trip, we went out to go and shoot a buffalo um, that we were going to use for lion bait. And uh, we went out and we spotted two buffalo bulls. And so we crept up to them. And I put the clients on the sticks. And uh, for about three or four minutes, he looked through the scope at this buffalo that was standing broadside. And he didn't want to take the shot. And finally, the buffalo turned sort of away from us. And I said, you know, just wait, just wait. And then the buffalo turned towards us. And I said, no, don't take that shot. It's pretty easy to wound them from a frontal shot. And anyway, the buffalo ran off. So uh, we uh, we went ahead of the buffalo and all the way around and uh, and ambushed them from the front. The, bull, the two bulls walked up towards us. And uh, again, I put the client on the sticks. And the buffalo was broadside and he waited and he waited. And as the buffalo turned out to leave, he took the shot. And so it was a sort of... He just shot past the hind quarter into the the buffalo's lung at a kind of acute angle and a bit too high up, and just nicked that one left lung. And uh, buffalo can live very long on a on a on a lung shot, like a single lung shot, you know, over forty eight hours. For some reason, it must be painful. But it makes them very aggressive. Yeah, I've not uh, a single shot, a single lung shot buffalo. And so uh, the buffalo ran off, and uh, we tracked it for a while and and finally i spotted it in the bushes and i could see some blood coming out of its nostril and so i put my client on the sticks again to shoot it and he couldn't see the buffalo for the life of him and so you know typically i should have shot it but he urged me not to because you know it was his first day on safari and he really wanted to kill the buffalo by himself so uh i regret it in hindsight i, I listened to him and i didn't shoot it you know and of course the buffalo ran off into very thick Riverine forest along the Mamaray River and sort of now had the upper edge on us. And so uh, we tracked it for about four, four and a half hours in this thick, thick riverine forest. And uh, there was very little visibility. And for that reason, I was actually in the front doing the tracking and looking for the buffalo myself because I didn't want the trackers in front of me because there's just no no visibility. And uh, this, this buffalo went along and he kept uh, zigzagging across a dry riverbed. Anytime a buffalo runs up a driver of a bank, you better be careful because if he's waiting for you at the top of that bank, he's gonna he's gonna have you. Sure. You kind of always off his track and sort of approach from the from above rather than you know straight up the path. And so he did this a couple times and he kept going. And uh, finally he went up another riverbed and I and I followed him up. <clears throat> and when I got to the top, it was a very thick bush. And uh in the bush, I spotted the buffalo. I could just see about eight inches of him in this thick, thick, thick brush. And uh, as I spotted him, he took off running out the back of the bush. And so I thought in my mind that he was running away from us. So I took a shot with the right barrel of my double, um, trying to break a pelvis or a hip or something um, at a fleeing buffalo. Well, it turned out he wasn't fleeing. He was actually going out the back to charge at us. And so momentarily, I lost sight of him. And when he appeared again, he was a few yards coming, you know, inbound. Wow. 
full speed towards me and he'd already dropped his horns to uh to go me and so i just sort of remember his his head drooped down and him looking at me through one eye as he as he came charging in and so i gave him my left barrel right between his his bosses on the top here because the head was already down and uh it didn't stop him he ended up hitting me and uh he uh i grabbed the horns as he put the the, the tip into my thigh and just sort of held on as, as hard as I could and try to stop it from going through me. And, you know, sort of lifted my weight off the ground. And the buffalo, uh, you know, um, tossed me in the air. And my feet went up and and I landed on my head, knocked myself out. And uh, he actually, I managed to shoot him in the brain. So he was actually already clinically dead um, when he gored me. And then wow. he fell down on top of me, on top of my legs and, and uh, died. And so when I came around, it was probably like 10 seconds later, he was still moving. I grabbed his horns again, but he was already dead. And so my trackers came and pulled me out from underneath him. And uh, I just remember a huge amount of pain in the lower end of my legs and my calves and stuff, and also in my in my thigh. And so I grabbed my double and loaded again and gave him two more shots just to make sure he didn't get up again. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I couldn't stand up. You know, I did it from the ground. <laughs> so, so then I just lay there for a moment because I knew it pierced me, and I was thinking, "Oh, here we go." Catcher's <laughs> worst nightmare is whether he's got your femoral artery, or uh, you know, even worse that you know, unthinkable horrors in the middle. You know, you can imagine. Sure. So, I I just lay there for a moment and then kind of felt around to see <laughs> what he had done, and. Uh, I realized, you know, he had, you know, he'd just gone right into my groin. And uh, so, the, you know, there's obviously a lot of blood coming out. I, I called the the car, which was quite a distance away, and it came straight to us. And I got my uh, trauma kit out. And I used a, an application gun called a, um, XDAT, which is uh, sort of like a tampon on steroids that you inject into the into the the bleeding and really like helps stop and helps the blood clot and uh yeah t- i was really fortunate missed that femoral actually that that uh, horn actually just went perpendicular with it missed it by about a centimeter wow. i was really lucky yeah so then uh got into the you know the guys carried me to the car we went back to camp and i organized the medical evacuation and then uh yeah f- um, when the plane arrived flew to kilimanjaro to clear customs and immigration and then to Nairobi um, where I went in an ambulance to the Aga Khan hospital, had a team of doctors there waiting for me. So you had to go through immigration in order to get to the hospital. Yeah, It's pretty crazy. Added an hour <laughs> in the plane to do that. Oh, yeah. uh, your, your medical kit, was that from Safari medic? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. Outstanding stuff. It's not cheap, but uh, it definitely has saved your life in that circumstance. Yeah, I never used the uh, the cat tourniquet because I, you know, I could figure out. I figured out that my femoral artery wasn't hit, which would have been very scary. But uh, you know, that stuff in that uh, in that kit is, will really save any hunter's life. Yeah, in any I, continent. I, I I carry one from him, and I, I've had him on the show as a you know outstanding guy, and uh, I think it's incredibly important for people to carry a good first aid kit, know how to use it, to know what's in it, to have it organized correctly. Um, because when you're in that situation where it's like, Hey, maybe I just cut my, my femoral artery, 
you don't have a lot of time. Um, no, you, you need about to 10 be, minutes. you need to be very, very efficient with everything that you're doing. So during this time, is your, uh, is your client freaking out? Yeah. You know, he was, and he also wasn't, you know, I, I think this was his first Buffalo and I think he probably didn't realize how dangerous it was, you know, <laughs> what, what the implications of being hit by a Buffalo are. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the doctor's, managed to stitch me up and what have you and, and clean, clean where the horn had gone inside of me. But it turned out uh, where the buffalo landed on me, it burst all my, it ruptured all my veins. Oh, wow. And uh, th there was a lot of damage just from the weight of that buffalo, which you would never think about, you know, but th that's why you can, if he ever landed on your body, you can tell why your spleen would, would rupture and what have you. Right. They're just incredibly heavy. And so I ended up having a deep tissue thrombosis in my calf from where he landed on me. And, uh, um, you know, they were worried about a, a pulmonary embolism. They gave, put me on blood thinners and all that sort of thing. But yeah. it's something you wouldn't even think about, you know. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's just so big and heavy. There was a fella here a couple of years ago that fell out of a tree stand. Um, but he, he had a harness on, um, but he didn't have his system quite right. So he ended up upside down and he couldn't he couldn't ride himself. And he was there for a couple of days. Um, his his pants came down. The bees were eating him. Um, you know, he was, he was defecating on himself. Like this was a horrible scenario and he, he was fading in and out of, of blacking out and, and being awake and some, some other hunters found him. And, uh, thankfully they didn't cut him down. Like they went and got help and came back because as soon as they brought him down, boom, he had a heart attack. Um, really? because yeah. he had all these blood clots, right? He, you know, he had all this pooling in his legs and stuff where, where this harness had pinched him off. So yeah, pretty incredible. I don't think he's doing super well now, but he's alive and that's better than nothing. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm so glad that, uh, that you had that kit that you had, you know, sounds like your, your trackers and your driver it sounds like you had a good team. Oh my god! Lucky. It's been a terrible season for PHs. I, I think um, we counted the other day. There's been 12 incidents in Africa, wow. which is one of the highest ever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I think it, you know, it just just comes to such a dry year. I said, yeah, it's just a combination of of desperateness from, on the animals' part. The same thing happened here last year. Um, it, it was incredibly dry. Animals were really stressed. Um, I. I ended up killing a, a black bear that charged me with a pistol while I was guiding elk hunters. And Oof. I've, I've had black bears bluff charge me and stuff before, but this was immediately a different scenario. You know, as soon as he came out of the brush, it was ears pinned, you know, it was a, it was a, a flat body that was moving fast. This animal had decided right off the bat that that it was a sure enough charge at least that's what i think i killed it at eight yards before it had a chance to stop and um i get a lot of criticism people are like well how do you know it wasn't a bluff charge i don't uh wasn't really willing to to pay the price of it end of the day to... human life's worth more it's not <laughs> yeah. worth testing that yeah. so. i had a bear tag it was bear season you know it's a dead bear i put my tag on it and move on with my life you know we found the elk that that afternoon but um what caliber were we using 10 mil, a 10 mil pistol. Yeah, geez, that's pretty good shooting. I wouldn't want to try to stop a black bear that's inbound with a pistol. Yeah, you know, the crazy thing too, Mike, is uh, typically I carry a 4570 um, yeah. le lever action gun whenever I'm blood trailing an animal. And uh, and the client had shot me an inreach text um, from his tree stand and he'd said, you know, smoked him, super good shot. I was like, cool. 
well, I'm not going to bring this this heavy ass rifle out here, you know, and I could just bring a bring a pistol. And I almost brought nothing at all. I thought I was just going out there to recover an elk. And, uh, you know, looking back, I don't know. I don't know if I would have been better off with the 4570 or or with the 10 mil because I really only had time for one shot. And I think I'm at that range with a moving target, I'm probably equally competent. Obviously I would rather have the energy of a, you know, 400 grain bullet going 1800 feet per second, rather than a 200 grain bullet going 1200 feet per second. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a fortunate thing. Um, I don't want to claim to be any kind of pistolero. I don't know if I could replicate that shot in the future, but I'm glad it worked out. What so you're would, rather be uh, lucky than good. <laughs> yeah, sure. Any day of the week. Um, yeah. what, uh, what would you do differently? I mean, you obviously, you know, you're, you're never going to know exactly where that animal is or, or where the trigger point is that they're going to start the charge from, but looking back on it, what are some of your lessons learned? Yeah. Always in these situations, it's not just one thing that went, that was wrong. It's right. normally a, a, you know, a bunch of different things that lead up to a situation like this, but it turned out the clients had loaded his own 375 ammunition and was way underpowered, so it wasn't penetrating hard. No way. That was the first thing, yeah. No way. So, you know, then when I saw that buffalo, I told you I saw the blood coming out of its nostril. Yeah. And the client urged me not to shoot. I should have probably uh, shot that that buffalo, you know, and, and yeah. put him out of his misery, you know. That, that was the right thing to do. Instead of now leading my trackers and everybody into this great danger, you know just because of a little bit of ego, you know, so uh, uh, about whether who actually killed it in the end, you know, so that that's, you know, we, we, we do a lot uh, for our clients to uh, try to please them, you know, and sometimes it's not the right thing. We feel that pressure. And of course I do too, because it's the guy's first Buffalo and he wants to do it himself. And I understand that, but you know, they, I, I think a lot of these guys don't realize the danger that's involved in it. You know, when you, when you don't take that, when you have the upper hand and don't take advantage of it. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, another thing too, um, I'd gone four and a half hours and my eyes were, were really uh, straining at that point. I should have just taken a break and let that buffalo be for a while. I could have gone back to camp and had lunch and had a rest and and uh, come back later when I think the buffalo would be hurting more and I would have been rested up and ready for for action, you know, instead of being tired and on a, it was a really hot day and and, and uh, what have you. So that, that was, I think, the, the other thing I would have done differently. Also, that buffalo i hit him in the brain with a solid i actually went right through his brain that last shot and he didn't fall to the ground which you would expect him to do and uh, it's because i used the solid i think if i'd been using an expanding uh, uh solid like a bonds x or something it would have been different it would have been a lot more catastrophic damage to his brain and he never would have touched me you know so i would i would have rather had a had a different bullet in there and then again, too, I often use a much bigger caliber, like a five seven seven. I think that would have made a big difference too. Yeah, at that kind of range, you know, you need a lot of stopping power. The gun I was using was pretty marginal. Hmm. That's okay. A, that's a consortment of different things. Yeah. So, if you'd been shooting a five seven seven, the amount of time that it takes you to recover from that recoil is a little bit greater for your second barrel. Would you have had enough time there? Yeah, what if because I shot him when he was running out of the bush and there's quite a few, quite a lot of time until he actually reappeared right in my face. Yeah. But that's the other thing where that buffalo foxed me is he ran out of the bush like he was running away. So I took that shot. Right. If I had known he was coming at me, I would have waited with both of those barrels. 
Right. And so that's kind of where he really outfoxed me because now by the time he was right in my face, coming inbound, I only had one shot left, which is not a great uh, position to be in, you know. Yeah. Why uh why double rifles? In those in those really, really thick situations like that, it's uh, I think I believe in them, you know. I, I love a bolt action, I use a bolt action a lot. Um, you know, bolt action is inherently more accurate. So at distance, you can often get yourself out of trouble by taking a really good accurate shot that you probably couldn't do with a double. And uh, furthermore, I like having the, uh, the you know, the capacity of a bolt action. Right. It's, you know, it's often good in, in more sort of more open environments. But when you get in that really thick brush with a bolt action, you're only actually going to get inevitably get one shot off because it's so thick with, by the time that buffalo charges you. So I prefer a double in that particular situation because I can have two shots to let off. You know, something that uh, that I've heard uh, Alaskan bear guides talk about. Some of the guides in my area that have to deal with with bears and lions a lot, and certainly with with African PHs, um, is that the guide's job is to be able to shoot something five yards away, and the client's job is to be able to shoot something a hundred yards away. Well, that's right. Yeah, and, you know, when guys say, "Well, how should I practice?" and what have you. But yeah, as a pH, I like to practice with my big, my big bores at really close range. Yeah, you know, I want to put a really small, small target there at close range and be able to hit whack it every single time. And uh, you develop that muscle memory for that close range stuff. That's really important because when something's inbound, um, obviously it's it's nerve wracking, and we tend to just sort of shoot at the center of the mass quickly because because we have such a limited amount of time before it hits us. And that's the wrong thing. We actually have to take our time and really, really um, aim small. And uh, yeah, that's the other thing. You know, I, I you know, I, I wonder if I ch- shot it in a different place if it would have gone down. But I can tell you, as big as that animal is at that close range, you need to aim very small and hit it just in the right place to make it to make it go down. Yeah, well, for sure. Um, but the, also, there's an amount of inertia there that is not going to stop you know you could you could hit that thing with your land cruiser and it's still going to keep coming forward just because it's generated so much momentum and it's a 1600 to 2000 pound animal like it's it's not just going to stop that's it i mean i I remember my impression of that buffalo bean is i couldn't believe how tall he was when he actually arrived on top of me it's a big big tall animal because we always see them dead and we never actually see them standing up next to us i couldn't believe the mass of that thing when he was standing up huge animal well, um, obviously, you know, you, you got hurt during this deal. You're, you're still recovering from it, but you've still been guiding hunts in the meantime and not, and not just for, for six-year-olds. No. What, what does, uh, what does the, the future look like for you? Um, going to continue guiding again next year? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's not going to slow me down at all. I've been doing a lot of physio and a lot of uh, um, physical rehabilitation. And I'm actually, I'm, I would say I'm like 95% healed now. There's no That's infection awesome. like that. And so, you know, if, if anything, it's going to, um, we do, we shoot so many Buffalo. We, we start to think we're indestructible, you know, and it's, it's just a really good wake up call and makes us what it makes me wiser, you know? So I think it's actually, it's a good thing at the end of the day, you know, nobody else was hurt and uh, I'm still alive, you know? So I think I'm just going to be a bit wiser this next time. So if somebody's coming to, to hunt Buffalo with you, um, next year or in years in the future, what is your expectation for the training that they put into, into themselves? Like what are their capabilities need to be? How should they be practicing and, and preparing for a hunt with you? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I always like telling my clients to go off to these shooting schools and there's some dangerous game shooting schools that are incredible out there, you know? And uh, I really recommend those. I see a lot of guys going going as marginal shots and when they come back, they're very confident and very good at at at, uh, at doing it. And so that's always a good foundation. But, you know, um, a lot of guys shoot off the bench and they shoot small calibers. You move, move up to the big calibers that we shoot Buffalo with, you know, they flinch and they're not used to it. So I think... Uh, that takes a bit of training and and uh also we you know we shoot off shooting sticks and so that that in itself is a whole different different ball game so you know i definitely advise clients to shoot their big balls and to shoot them off shooting sticks like they'll be hunting in africa that makes a big difference you know it's, it's not a it's not a particularly hard animal to hit a buffalo it's big and it's got big you know the vitals are big so um you know, I think anyone can do it, but it definitely takes a certain uh, amount of confidence and and uh, what have you, preparation to do it properly. Are your shooting sticks uh, bipods or tripods? So I'm actually the I've I've sort of used them all, and I've kind of settled on the Blaza. Um, it's a sort of double double pivot shooting stick which supports the front of the gun and the back. It's okay. a little bit slower to get into it and get used to it. It takes a little bit of it's a bit of a knack. But I've found since I've been using those, my wound rate has really decreased. That's you know? great, and especially like with women and 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 uh, kids and stuff hunting, I found that that shooting stick is really brilliant. Well, you're um, doing an incredible job. If you're putting buffalo in front of your client for three or four minutes for them to to have that shot, like that's freaking phenomenal. Because you know they really need to be able to make that shot in three or four seconds. That's it. That's yeah. it. Um, I always find when you take your time making the shot, it never gets better. It always gets worse. Yeah. You know, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. Animal gets alerted by your presence and it's, it's not going to get easier. He's just going to get more and more wise and, and try harder and harder to get away from you. You know, when you, when you're telling your story, one of the parts that really just made me cringe is, uh, is when you're talking about your client, not being able to find the Buffalo and the scope. I think every guide ever has had that problem where it's like, I can, I can see this thing plain as day. I can describe it to you in seven different languages, but for (laughs) the love of God, why, why can't you see it? Like, and the reason is because it's hard to do if you're inexperienced. So something that, that I highly recommend people to practice, whether that I don't care what kind of hunt they're going on is to be able to find objects in their scope, like go out to the shooting range, look at something and then be able to get your scope on it immediately and find your target in your scope. And gosh, that, that is such an important skill that is free to practice that costs you $0 to practice. And you got to be able to do it because, uh, man, it, it's just this this major shortcoming that so many hunters have uh, drives me crazy. I'm I'm sure it does yeah. to you too. And the other thing too, when you're dangerous game uh, hunting, when you get out of the car, load that gun, and empty your rifle is useless because of the the danger can be right there as you get out. But also, always carry your own rifle. You know that that lesson was learned on this on this incident. My client got tired and he let the tracker carry his rifle. By the time he grabbed his rifle back, the whole incident was over. Yeah, if he had been carrying his rifle and, and you know if it was you i know you would have helped me and shot you know and that makes a big difference of you know um we are we rely on our clients too to to often turn that buffalo or to to help us bring it down you know right two guns is always better than one so i didn't have any of that support in this particular incident 
just because he didn't have his rifle in hand. I was on a hunt in Colorado a few years ago and uh, I got extremely dehydrated and I got hurt on the way out. My, my back was hurt really bad. Um, but I still had a couple miles to go and, and I could do it. It was just going to take some time. And, uh, one of the guys that I was with was a Marine and, and he got it, you know, he's like, okay, we're going to go slow, but it, it is what it is. He knew I wasn't going to quit under any circumstances, but the, the camera guy, and I feel bad about this because when he was hiking into this hunt, like 10 days earlier, he couldn't do it. So he had to split his gear up with a bunch of different people. Everybody was carrying cameras and batteries and his boots and whatever else to just to get him in there. So on the way out, you know, he's seeing me struggle along and, uh, and he says, Hey, I can carry your rifle for you. And I looked at him and you know, I, my filter was gone at that point. I was like, I'd rather die. And, it, <laughs> and it's a hundred percent true. Like there's, there's not a circumstance where I can carry myself that I'm going to let somebody else carry my rifle. Like no way not happening. That's it. I cringe <laughs> when I watch these videos and see other professional hunters walking around with their tracker carrying their gun, you know, Ugh. he's, these incidents happen in split seconds. There's yeah. no time. No and, time. Uh, you got to carry it yourself. Oh man, um, Mike, are you going to be at any shows this year in the states? Yes, I'm coming to Dallas Safari Club. Okay, and then I'm actually speaking at the Las Vegas uh, Safari Club, and then I'm Great. going to Nashville. Yeah, so I'll okay. be at all the big ones. Yeah, good. And what about yourself? Um, I'll be at Western Hunt Expo for sure. I don't think I'm going to go to to Dallas or SEI, and I haven't gotten the rest of my show schedule yet. Uh, might might be going to Shot. I I just don't know yet. Um, I've got a meeting on Monday to determine what my show schedule is like. But yeah, if uh, if people are interested in hunting with you, if they want to see East Africa, well, it's still East Africa. Um, if they want to experience this wildlife, these animals get to know firsthand how delicious a warthog is or how just fascinated it is to go over one hill and see water buck and the next hill to see impala and the next hill to see buffalo and the next hill to see you know the the incredible number of different wildlife that that are there if somebody wants that that real african experience and they want to go with with you with a ph that's been there and done it and, and cares about the animals and cares about his clients how do they get a hold of you um, best by email it's uh, mike fell safaris at icloud.com okay and uh, best way to get in touch with me we will uh we'll put that email in the link um as a link in the podcast description so if people people want to reach out to mike and and uh book a hunt or just uh tell them thank you for for being a, a pillar of modern masculinity then uh then do it well, sir i i appreciate your time very much um I appreciate the story. I, I love a good hunting story and the best hunting stories in the world involve Buffalo where things are going wrong. I'm just sure. That's for sure. No, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your support. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. What I remember is getting up in the dark, shuffling on out to the pickup and climbing in, heading out, headlights going out over the fields and the roads and getting back into the into the mountains and the timber and knowing that there was a, a destination out there that that I was going to be sharing with my dad and at some point 
either during the drive or, or once we got out to some ridge that we were going to be watching when the sun came up, you'd hear that, that little squeak of, uh, of the lid coming off of the thermos. And then you unscrew that top part a little bit, pour that coffee or hot chocolate into a cup, and uh, you can just see the little tiny vapors of steam coming off of it, curling up into the morning and holding on to that thing like, like it was a prayer and you know, blowing some of the heat off of it and taking that, that first hot drink in the morning. And then the same thing that evening, you know, because if there was anything left, it was still going to be hot. Like those are core memories. Those are part of part of growing up and part of being an adult and then sharing that now, you know, I'm, I'm getting to share that with my nephew and giving him those experiences. And it's an accessory to the experience. But part of what I remember about hunting and working with my family as a little kid was that there was this green, beat to hell, still going strong, Stanley Thermos. And now there's a complete line of Stanley products out there. And if you go to stanley1913.com, you can look into those and see if there's something out there that you need or that you want or that you would like to give to somebody else. And if you use the discount code 6RANCH, the number six and the word ranch, and you can get 25% off of just about anything in their store. I encourage you to do it. They're great supporters of this show. They're great supporters of this audience. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of your support and your attention. We're not stopping. We're going strong. And uh, I'm glad to, to pass along this discount to you guys. And I hope that you find something that can help develop that core memory for you and, and the people that you love. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.